Let us now turn for our scripture reading to Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide, even to death. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 48 is a psalm of praise to the Lord for his nearness and grace to his people. His uh, Zion, uh, the city of our God, referring to Jerusalem, of course. Uh, this psalm may commemorate some great deliverance, uh, verses uh, 4 through Seven seem to describe a situation where the city was surrounded by enemies and then they were dispersed and scattered by the fear of God. But it's quite uh, impossible. There's nothing really in the psalm to identify this with some specific event that we can read of in the, the scriptures, although there were many similar uh, uh, such instances where uh, Jerusalem faced threats from enemies and uh, were protected by the Lord. But certainly what we have here is a message for the church of all ages. And because that's because what God was to his covenant people in this psalm, he is to his church in all generations. In fact, in the letter to uh, the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 22, uh, Mount Zion and the city of the living God is identified with the church, the church of the firstborn and the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we properly uh, understand this psalm about Mount Zion and about the city of God to have tremendous uh, importance for our understanding of the church of God. I've chosen this psalm, especially verses 12 through 14, in connection with the ordination of office bearers this morning. Uh, because of its celebration and praise of God among his people. God among his people. Uh, that's what we really need to see by faith when it, when it comes to the church. As we sang that, uh, previous hymn, it says, see the streams of living water. And, uh, that, uh, is a summons to a kind of spiritual perception and vision, not simply a literal water that supplied a city, but to recognize 
that in the Holy Spirit, God has abundant and continuous supplies for his holy city, the church of Jesus Christ. And we're to perceive that, we're to see that by faith, by paying attention to what God himself says about the church. And that's what we must do. That's what encourages us with optimism and with gratitude about the church of Jesus Christ. And that is crucial. It's crucial to motivate us uh, to serve and to value one another as brothers and sisters and fellow servants of our King. So our theme from this psalm is uh, a summons to rejoice and praise our God in His church. To rejoice and praise God in His church. To do so with joy and praise from careful consideration. We read in verse 11 that God's judgments are reasons for joy and gladness. And when, we're th- when we hear this uh, language of God's judgments, particularly in the Psalms, we're not simply to think about the way God punishes uh, sin in individuals or in nations, but we're to think of God's righteous rule, God's decisions and His statutes, God's will and action whereby he sets things right. And that is a reason for joy for God's people. But the psalm itself is full of reasons for joy and the praise of God. And we will, we will take note of them. But this requires careful observation. It's possible to live in a beautiful city and to perhaps walk past, uh, well manicured lawns and uh, flower beds and to see uh, stately buildings uh, towering in beauty and order and be quite oblivious to the scenery. Become so accustomed to it that you hardly ever lift up your eyes and pay attention to the beauty of the uh, architecture and, and somehow look at it as a visitor might observe what you may take for granted due to a lack of consideration or a lack of attention. In verses 12 and 13, we read the words, Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces. Consider the beauty of this city. Consider its fortifications. Consider its uh, security. It had uh, beautiful palaces for the king. But the Lord calls us to pay attention to the ways in which he shows his presence and care in this kind of exhortation. Now, for the city of Jerusalem, indeed, that, that included stone constructions of walls and towers for uh, defense, palaces for the king among them. But the church also has its defenses. The church is to be surveyed, and God's care and God's work among His people is to be carefully noted and observed for what it is. The church is in possession of the Word of God. What advantage uh, does the Jew have? That's a question that's raised in the New Testament. And the answer is much in every way, but chiefly, that to them were committed the oracles of God. 
To Israel belonged the covenants and the promises. God's ancient people possessed His Word. And there is nothing like the Word of God that makes clear God's presence and grace among His people. Because it's through His Word and it's through the sacraments that God works. They're called the primary means of grace. Because these are the things that God uses to impart His grace. The proclamation of His Word. The sacraments which are associated with special blessings by the Lord to give us expectation and confidence that in gathering as God's people under the Word of God and to partake of the sacraments, that we are in the Holy Spirit's workshop, so to speak. These are the primary, the main ways in which God communicates grace to His people. And by faith, we, we recognize that. We believe in that. And we treasure uh, these proofs of God's grace and presence with us. Likewise, we ought to consider the offices that uh, Christ has appointed for the church. Christ ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. And uh, that particularly refers to the gift of the Holy Spirit who is poured out upon the church and upon each living member of the church. But in Ephesians chapter 4, where it speaks of Christ bestowing gifts upon the church, it immediately then makes reference to the offices, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, but pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, so that the church might be built up through these means that God has provided. Yes, Christ has appointed offices and the Holy Spirit gives officers in order to serve among God's people and thus manifesting God's goodness and mercy to us. And then there is the fellowship and the communion of the saints as a spiritual family united in a common faith whereby each member contributes to the edification of the body in love, with each member contributing towards that building up of the saints according to the diversity of gifts and graces that the Holy Spirit gives to His church. Now, these are commonplace things, aren't they? But we need to pay attention to them. We need to consider them. We need to appreciate them by faith and to see them not simply as long-standing practices and traditions of some human organization, but as the demonstrations of God's work in this world in a very concrete, specific way. That we might know God among us through these things, and that we might praise Him and be joyful in these gifts. But we can move further and we can consider the specific treasures of God's work in the church. Because the riches of God's grace through His Word and Spirit, uh, they're not disconnected from history. They're not disjointed from God's providence in the way in which these gifts are bestowed and the way in which they're actually worked out in the life and history of the church in different times and places. 
in the various kinds of practices and traditions that the church has also observed in terms of the way these gifts are in fact manifested in the order, in the actual life and fellowship of the church. And this leads us to consider other more uh, specific things. We could and should consider the historic creeds and confessions of the church also as the way in which God the Holy Spirit defends His flock, builds them up in the truth, protects and equips them. I think we can fail to appreciate the significance of of uh, of certain practices, for example, in our worship services where we stand and confess the Apostles' Creed. Something which the Christian church has done down through the centuries. And we can, we can fail to, to appreciate the significance of saying those same words. Yes, in different languages indeed. But to say those very same words that the Christian church has said in its corporate worship and is yet saying in so many places throughout uh, the world today. I've had opportunity over the last years to uh, officiate at many gravesides, and it's been our, our practice to recite uh, the Apostles' Creed and to uh, conclude our prayer with the Lord's Prayer and to, to sing the doxology. You know, these are, these are basic forms of Christian expression and faith. You can look at past centuries and consider what was done to prepare uh, members to join the church. And often among them was, well, they have to be able to recite the Apostles' Creed and they need to know the Lord's Prayer and uh, perhaps also know the Ten Commandments. And my concern is not to suggest that those that do not uh, carefully observe the practice of recitation of these historic confessions are not Christians or not true churches. But I always feel kind of sad when I, I see younger uh, people who I knew uh, grew up, you know, saying the Apostles' Creed, and they don't seem to know it anymore. And they stumble over the Lord's Prayer. And they either are embarrassed or they really don't know the doxology. And I say to myself, that's just really too bad because something significant has been lost. Knowing these confessions and and creeds that God has given for uh, the edification of the church, for her establishment in the truth of the gospel, for her confession and witness in this world. Or think of the form of sound words, likewise, that, that insist and enrich our adherence to God, God's word. And uh, I'm thinking here of, for example, this form for the ordination of office bearers that we just read. And uh, yes, it's been updated and modified somewhat in the last year. Some of the language has been uh, modified or updated. But it is significant to consider that for, that for some of you, perhaps for a good number of you, your grandparents heard that form read at the installation of office bearers in the church. Perhaps you have great-grandparents who served as uh, grandfathers, I should say, who served as elders and deacons in the church. And they were actually ordained with a very similar form that basically gives a faithful exposition of the teaching of God's Word concerning the nature, the gift of these offices. And that carries weight. That's significant. 
It's something that we ought to appreciate. Now, we could look at other forms, the form for baptism or the form for the Lord's Supper. Again, these forms that truly uh, preserve sound words, faithful exposition, familiar language that over the years gains a weight and a beauty that serves to edify the church also with a sense of her connection with history, with God's work down through the generations. Think of the great heritage of singing. Singing those psalms and hymns of the faith. And again, the church throughout the years has added, has improved, has reformed in terms of uh, liturgical forms and renderings of the psalms for use in worship and the production of, of new and good hymns. But at the same time, to maintain this continuity with the, with the church past and to sing those ancient hymns and to sing the psalms along with the church down through the generations. And to be aware of the significance of that as enjoying these precious gifts, this heritage of faith that God has given to us. Well, how do we do that? How do we come to treasure these things that defend and that beautify the church? Well, we need to, we need to walk about Zion. We need to go all around her. We need to count her towers. Now, this was addressed to people that were uh, familiar with the city, but they could fail to pay attention. We need to take note. We need to reflect. We need to talk about these things. We need to study them, perhaps, and mark them and learn how how faithful they are to Scripture and how helpful they really are for our understanding of God's grace and gifts to us. And so, indeed, we're to rejoice and praise God in His church uh, with joy and praise from careful consideration of how God makes His presence and grace known in the church. And secondly, we do that with joy and praise that is centered on God. Verse 14 indeed brings the psalm and it brings uh, the, the point of this passage to a climax where it says, this is our God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. The glory of the city of God is the God of the city. And that's a theme that runs throughout this psalm. He is greatly to be praised in the city of God. We read verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. He is to be praised as one who is in this city. And he is to be praised by the city. The daughters of Judah are to rejoice and be glad. And he is to be praised for the city. For his gracious work among his people. We might say God is to be praised in the church and by the church. And we are to be praised for the church. His new creation, which reveals his glory in a way that is far greater yet than the creation of this world. Mount Zion was the city of the great king. Beauty and elevation the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. 
And then immediately it says, God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. And the meaning uh, of this for the church is clear. And that is that Christ is the great king and Christ is present with us. Emmanuel, God with us. You see, the strength and beauty of the church is our faithful covenant God himself with us, always, forever and ever. And we need to see this as the main attraction throughout this psalm. God himself is the defense of the city. God himself is the defense of the church. Uh, these towers that this psalm points out, these battlements of the city, uh, they're not the ultimate refuge. In verse 3, uh, we read, God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. And immediately following that is this uh, picture of kings gathering against the city and then being dispersed, not by force of arms, but by the fear of God, by God making his power and presence known in some way that that led them to run from him. In uh, Psalm 46, this is given uh, great attention. The psalm begins with these familiar words, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then this thought is repeated uh, two more times in this psalm. In verse 5, it says, God is, is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of day. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of J Jacob is our refuge. And then again, at the conclusion of Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And you know that a refuge is a place of safety. That's where we go in times of uh, storm or trouble. That's where we're hidden and protected. And God himself is that safety and protection of the church. And that means also that, yes, we treasure our forms and we treasure our, our confessions and, and the discipline and the offices of the church. But God is the one who establishes us. God will establish it, we read at the end of verse 8, forever. And trust in anything else or anyone else is misplaced trust. We sang also this morning from Psalm 44, these, uh, these words, of uh, verse 4 and following. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. Sometimes when we sing such psalms in my thoughts, I'm uh, aware of the possibility of visitors among us. And uh, they're listening to us sing about um, trampling our enemies and uh, wondering if any of them are thinking, well, that sounds kind of like the Islamic militism, uh, militarism that we hear about, where uh, the the... The faith is advanced through conquest by the sword and by military power. And uh, <clears throat> yes, indeed, 
In Israel, God protected his city, and sometimes he used such military power in order to fend off enemies that wanted to destroy Israel. Uh, but again, in the context of the church, we see this actually uh, not as something less significant, and uh, we don't face enemies that are less threatening, but we face spiritual enemies. And we're defenseless before the power of Satan. We're defenseless before uh, the allurements and the power of this world and our own sinful nature. But our confidence is in God. Our confidence is in God's grace to, to preserve us in the faith, to defend us, so that we maintain our grasp of the gospel and that we persevere in the faith despite temptations and troubles. Our confidence is not in the, in the arm of flesh in any way. But as we're involved in spiritual warfare, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against heavenly hosts of wickedness in the, in the high places. And we are to be strong in the power of the Lord and put on His armor of faith and truth and love and hope. But it's God alone who is our strength. The Word and sacraments themselves, they direct our focus upon our God of grace and mercy. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple, right? There, the very center of the city. And the place of worship is singled out. And in the Old Covenant, the, the temple was the place of sacrifice. That was a place where God... uh made himself known in a in a local, special way in the Holy of Holies. But in the church, God makes himself known, especially in the gospel of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where we learn of the loving kindness of the Lord. Word and sacrament, both, they direct our faith to the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered for our salvation. That's where God's loving kindness to us is displayed. And all our optimism about the church lies right here. In the presence of God and His promises in Christ, they're the joy, they are the praise of the church. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who builds His church. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who indwells His church by His Spirit. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who keeps his church. And so we rejoice and we praise God with joy and praise centered on God. And then finally, with joy and praise worth making known. If we were to go back to Psalm 47, we would see that this Psalm, more than Psalm 48, really has a missionary uh, kind of emphasis. Uh, God is the great king over all the earth we read. God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. There's this expansive uh, outlook to that psalm, but it's not missing in Psalm 47. Uh, we hear it in verse 2, where Mount Zion is described as the joy of the whole earth. And again, in terms of our uh, new covenant context, we recognize that the only true joy that is to be found in this earth is in the work of God in Christ. It's in His work of gathering, defending, and building a church of people chosen to everlasting life and united in faith to Him, to one another. Likewise, in verse 10, we read, 
according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. And that indeed speaks of the, the missionary calling of the church of Jesus Christ, that it is not simply a local uh, gathering, but Christ is making his glory known among the nations and will continue that great work until he returns. And indeed, the more we rejoice and praise God in the church, the more his fame is made known to others. Don't let the world give you an inferiority complex when it comes to the church. You know, there are pressures that would uh, intimidate us to be rather reserved and rather uh, silent about, <clears throat> about the church of Jesus Christ because the church is scorned and it's vilified so much in our, our present day. But we ought not to be embarrassed to extol the church and to communicate our love for the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, we love our Savior and we love his wife. We love the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ manifests his presence and grace in his church. Praise God in his church. Also for your children's sake. In verse 13, we read, Mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following, that you may tell it to the generation following. We don't want to just skip over that. The reason for careful consideration of God's presence and grace and power in the church is to share this knowledge, to communicate it from generation to generation. Children will take on the attitude of their parents toward the church of Jesus Christ. And that will be an attitude of love for the church and commitment to the church. They'll hear them praying for the church. They'll hear them defending the church. Or it could be an attitude of aloofness towards the church. Or even of characteristic criticism and judgment of the church of Jesus Christ. We need to all remember that the children are watching. The children, their children are listening. Will they catch a vision of God in the church from us? Will they come to see her by faith as, as fair as the moon and clear as the sun and uh, awesome as an army with banners? Uh, to use the language of the Song of Songs and its depiction of the church of Jesus Christ as something to behold the way the Lord Jesus Christ himself views the church that he loves, which he purchased with his own blood, which he cares for. Yes, it's uh, by faith that we must see the church. Churches rise and fall, don't they? And there is no guarantee. There's no guarantee for the continuation of this, of this particular congregation. I, I remember it used to kind of bug me when I attended seminary and one of the professors would say, I expect that in probably 50 to 70 years, this school will probably be liberal. And that was just kind of an observation that reflects the, the sad reality of the history of the church and the history of seminaries that start out with a commitment to orthodoxy, which start out as faithful to the word of God. But over time, they turn away from it. Over time, they commit apostasy and they become liberal. And you could trace the history of, of, uh, of the church 
in terms of its visible and its uh, historical manifestation, and you'll see that. You'll see one re reformation after another in terms of uh, the response of the faithful to the apostasy of the church, and uh, that likely will continue until our Lord returns. Churches rise and fall. Sometimes they're destroyed. Sometimes they're destroyed through persecution. There's no guarantee that uh, the church in any local given place will never never be wiped out by persecution. It has it has in the past. It may in the future. Sometimes churches are obliterated as they suffer uh, along the kinds of general uh, judgments that overtake the world in which they live through warfare, where cities are demolished. And churches, not just church buildings, but congregations are destroyed or dispersed, decimated. Or again, most sadly and most frequently by apostasy, by turning away uh, from the faith. Churches rise and fall. And our calling is not to build institutions with the idea that we can somehow exalt ourselves and somehow uh, take pride in our accomplishments. Our calling is to be faithful. Our calling is to trust God in our circumstances. But the church of Jesus Christ will endure. God will continually reform and renew and restore His church. He continually preserves his elect faithful, and he will do that into the end. And by faith, we may see his presence and grace as it is manifested again in uh, those ways in which the Bible itself leads us to clearly see God's work. And we can rejoice where we see that. We can do that despite uh, despite all the, the failings and the troubles, the, the attacks that the church suffers, the sad departures uh, that the church faces, the judgments made against her, the accusations she must endure, the discouragement she faces because of her own weaknesses and failings and sins. And yet we may have optimism. We may have joy. In fact, that's really quite essential for persevering service and love for the church, that outlook of faith, confidence in God's presence and help as we persevere trusting him for needed grace. To God be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.